The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. Good morning, Wellsprings. It's good to be with you again. Some of you might find what I'm going to say odd, or maybe for some of you it makes complete sense. You'll see in just a second. Five times a day, I get a notification on my phone with these words. Don't forget you're going to die. Open up for a quote. What it takes me to is an app on my phone that I intentionally downloaded called, kind of humorously, I guess depending upon your definition of humor, We Croak. And it is intended to be an aid, a a guide towards remembering that we are all mortal. It's a core part of my spiritual practice. Remembering that, that myself and all the people I love and everyone everywhere, we are all mortal. This is critically important to me to remember this, not to be weird or odd or to be obsessive or to be morbid. It's just necessary for me to remember, remember part of what my essence is as a human being, to remember as the the great old Unitarian teacher or minister, William Ellery Channing, said, I am a living member of the great family of all souls. And part of being a family member of all souls for me is remembering that for someone at some place, at some time, all the time, somewhere and everywhere, death is interrupting someone's life. And in choosing to remember that what I find within myself is that I pay more attention to this life, my life, and hopefully the lives around me, and that something within opens. It is a core part of my spiritual practice, and that's why I get these interrupting notifications five times a day. Today's Spirit Flicks message, Spirit Flicks, the summer series that we do about the stories on our screens that we watch and the messages, the wisdom within those stories. It is appropriately entitled, from what I've been talking about, Dead to Me. It is a Netflix show that has had two seasons so far, and I think there's going to be one more season at some point after COVID. Uh, and the show's really about what happens when death interrupts, but the invitation is kind of declined over and over and over again. Yet, death, as the ultimate interruption, keeps insisting until someone would pay attention. The two main characters of Dead to Me are Jen and Judy, who kind of represents two polar personality type opposites. Jen, who is kind of verbally all sharp elbows and very acerbic, lacerating wit and drops F-bombs like... Like that, like that good house on Halloween that has all the excellent candy and just generally gives it, generously gives it out. That's kind of what Jen is like with her curse words. And then there's Judy, who first comes across as this sweet, almost innocent, almost flower child, uh, like person. And they meet, fittingly again, first seen in a grief group, a grief support group. See, Jen is there because her husband, has died suddenly, unexpectedly, awfully. He was killed in a hit-and-run accident. And Judy is there for her own reasons, although, as we will come to understand very shortly, she is not 
everything that she seems to be. And Jen and Judy befriend each other. Jen, who appears very strong, and Judy, who appears very vulnerable, they find themselves becoming friends. And part of this uh, show, which is very much centered on the experience of these two women, it is about other aspects of their lives. Uh, throughout this, throughout these, throughout these two seasons, we see them dealing with all varieties of sexism, and Jen being a single mom trying to raise two kids and both of them dealing with various varieties of abusive and narcissistic men in their lives. And one of the things I like about this show is it you know, doesn't make uh, Jen and Judy seem at all like victims. It doesn't make them even uh, like innocents. Uh, they make choices, sometimes wise, sometimes skillful, sometimes funny, and very often not wise at all. And that kind of perpetuates the cycles of distrust or dis-ease that they find themselves in. And what we come to know at the end of the very first episode is Judy is not what she seems to be. You see, she has actually kind of stalked Jen to that grief group because of her own guilty conscience because she is actually partially responsible with her gaslighting, manipulative, narcissistic, on-again, off-again ex-husband. She's actually partially responsible for the death of Jen's husband. So this show has all kinds of secrets and twists and turns, and it's wickedly funny at times. It is very much a comedy. It's a very sarcastic comedy and a sharp comedy. Um, and it has these shifts and tones from kind of this sometimes side-splitting laughs, or at least I found it that way, um, to grief and, and loss and deep sadness and despair and some folks have, have, have found that that's actually something they criticize the show for but for me I actually think it's one of the things I love about the show because this is television about these two folks lives it's about grief the grief that they keep on kind of delaying or denying or putting off or thinking they can somehow manage by ignoring it um why I like the shifts and tones of this show is that for those of us who have lived through life-altering griefs, and I'm certainly one of them, and I imagine many of you have had that experience as well too, I mean, the, the, the person who kind of started the whole field on death and dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she's misquoted all the time. She said, you know, these five stages of grieving, they're not supposed to be linear, where it all ends up in acceptance. She says it's not linear at all. It can be wild shifts in mood and tone and feelings, sometimes one moment to the next, and that's reflected in Dead to Me, and it's one of the things I think they get so, through, get so true about complicated grief. They push it off. And there's hiding and lying and secrecy. And I got the sense that uh, an image came to me. I was watching this show over its two seasons. That this show is set in an affluent community south of Los Angeles. I mean, a place where it's hot most of the time. And it always appears that the sun is shining um, in this community. I think it's Laguna Beach. And I got the sense that this show is about a building snowball of unacknowledged grief in Southern California. One of the ways that they convey this is that um, excessive use of, of, of alcohol and, and drugs 
increasingly takes center stage in Jen and Judy's life. It reminds me as someone in recovery from a substance use disorder and in the work that I do professionally in working in drug and alcohol and substance use disorder treatment is that in early recovery, which can be so painful, not just from addiction, but also from grief or from anything for that matter, early recovery, sometimes our greatest win is simply not causing any more losses and then just starting to dig ourselves out. I think of this image of a snowball building and building and building through denial and not facing what is so self-evidently true. I think of our own snowball this July, this warm season, this very hot season of the COVID cases. And it's not just due to increased testing. Yes, we know more of the cases now, but the deaths, especially in the last few weeks, are also rapidly starting to increase as well. All because some places felt this need to rush to get back to normal. And in wanting to rush to get back to normal, the perpetuation of the cycles of loss, of death, of infection, by opening up too quickly, it's all too predictable and sadly all too human in so many ways that it's just perpetuated the harm of this virus. I've gone um, snorkeling, but I've never gone scuba diving. But I know some people who are pretty good scuba divers. And one of the things you might know about scuba diving is that as you uh, pass through, either on your way up or your way down, especially on your way up when you want to get back to the surface, as you pass through these atmospheric levels of pressure, if you go up too quickly, you will get what are called the bends, that literally the pressure will collapse in on your lungs and you may have an embolism. That may threaten your life. To me, it's like collectively we've got a huge experience, terrible and tragic, of the bends. We've just gone too unwisely, too quickly, with not enough humility in the face of this virus. And we're paying for it. I, I've been off social media, and I really like social media. I recognize its risks, and sometimes it doesn't have the best effect on my mental health. Um, and so from time to time, especially when I'm really busy and I've been really busy in my three jobs this past week, I like to step back from it. And one of the things I notice as my kind of thoughts settle down a little bit more as I become so aware of my own grief and of the collective grief and how that grief is not falling equally across the society, especially during this time when many of us with white skin are waking up to the systemic nature of oppressions in our country and one of the ways that that systemic oppression is showing itself is that this virus is so disproportionate in its catastrophic effects in black and brown communities versus white communities. And that's part of enlarging the heart. That's simply saying, well, it's not happening to me or it's not happening near me. That fails the test of universalism of opening the heart to the wider love that includes us all. I recognize that in so many of us have said, and I firmly believe there aren't really too many good choices. Some of the best wins we can have right now is simply about harm reduction for a while at least and letting that be good enough of simply not causing more losses. I'm also aware that I'm not sure anyone ever got rich trying to convince Americans of the virtues of tragedy. The fact that sometimes there are simply no good options. There are simply less bad options. I would hope that if we could embrace this space of the tragic, 
of the no perfect or not even any good options that we might have taken or still could take some different decisions like they've done in other countries where they simply paid the most vulnerable, economic vulnerable people to stay home to make sure they would not fall into destitution. And yes, that would mean that some of us would not be able to enrich ourselves in the ways that some of us, or at least a few of us in this country, have gotten used to accumulating wealth. I wish we would balance our values differently collectively right now. I'm not sure anyone ever got rich trying to sell Americans on the virtues of tragedy. But damn, there are plenty of people trying to sell other stuff. Snake oil, gaslighters and liars and charlatan, charlatans and bamboozlers. They seem to sometimes make an awful lot of money doing it. This past week, Chuck Woolery, maybe you remember him, I grew up with him as a talk, uh, say not a talk show, excuse me, a game show host, and for some reason he is seen as an authority <laughs> on the virus. I mean, he just tweeted less than a week ago. Uh, I think he said they're all liars, or they're, they're, they're all lying, and he accused the media and the CDC and most doctors, he said, and a bunch of other people as well, too. They're all lying. Virus isn't, you know, that much of a threat. And then predictably, just a couple days ago, his son came down with the virus. And he did acknowledge it. The virus is real. And then he pulled down his social media presence. Now let me say, I've got a human mind like everyone else. Schadenfreude lives in here, but I don't try to feed it. I take no chosen pleasure of the fact that his son's life has now been impacted by this terrible virus. One of the things I believe as a Unitarian Universalist, especially as a Universalist, that viruses don't have any theology. I lived through the age of AIDS before there were the effective treatments, and I lost friends to that dreaded disease, to that other pandemic during our lifetime. And I remember the viciousness and the cruelty of those who had a theology that would say, this is God's divine judgment upon those lives. I will not do the same thing now in reverse simply because I profoundly disagree with someone. It is a failure of my own universalism were I to do so, of a love that truly does embrace us all. Rather, I think this is a time for all of us in our tradition Especially within Wellsprings, I thought of certain names who aren't even by name Unitarian Universalists, but have been so important to the life of this congregation. John Spong, Thich Nhat Hanh, Brene Brown, Glennon Doyle. These teachers who don't offer us simple or easy answers, but instead encourage us in so many different ways to open ourselves to the uncertainty of life, to its vulnerability, to open in such a way that we grow our hearts through compassion, especially in those times when we don't have easy answers, so that we make that love that is always waiting for us more broad, more bold, and more expansive. There's a grief counselor named Claire Bidwell-Smith. She said, you know, during this time of COVID, we've lost so many of our usual grieving rituals, but the thing is that grief 
that grief is there and it's waiting for us. It is waiting for us eventually to experience. And I think, as I mentioned her just a moment ago, Glennon Doyle, when she says, we can do hard things. And grieving is one of those hard things, but we have to do it. We have to engage in it. And this is one of the things I love the most about Dead to Me, about the show, is that that grief group that Jen and Judy, at least Judy under false pretenses, meets Jen in, they return to it later on in the second season. And Jen, whose sharp angles are starting to soften a little bit, she goes back to the grief group. It was kind of played for jokes in the beginning of the show. This time, not so much. And she opens up to a complex, complicated grief that she has been carrying for decades now, the death of her mother at age 19, when she was 19. And she said, my mom was sick my entire life and I just, I got tired of being, her being sick and I kind of wanted it to get over. But then once her body couldn't fight the cancer anymore, I got angry at her for not being able to fight it anymore. And you could feel how stuck Jen is in this place of this complicated grief for so long. And the stuckness starts to move, not by solving it, not by fixing it, not by having easy answers, but by her tears. by the movement of the most elemental way that we express our compassion for ourselves and for each other. And the people in the grief group, they witness. It's the most powerful thing that happens in our grief. We don't solve it. We don't fix it. We heal it. And very often when we can heal it, we can do exactly what I think Jesus as a master psychologist said when he said, blessed are those, uh, are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I think of this power of witness, of what is hard, of what is painful, of what breaks the heart, and of what I hope we would leave more space for to be able to do right now as a way of not perpetuating the harms. I think of the beautiful poem, Keeping Quiet, by Pablo Neruda, which I want to share with you right now. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their siblings in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. I want to read one of those stanzas again. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence 
might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. So many of us are threatened with death right now. And it does not have to be this way. We could make different choices to become more adaptive, more compassionate, more kind, more capable of doing the hard things in and with our grief, not pushing it off and recognizing that eventually it comes knocking on our door as well. I want to leave you with a final image from the early days of the pandemic. And it's just as we were kind of getting our sea legs, recognizing what we were dealing with. And this happened here in Philadelphia in Rittenhouse Square. Rittenhouse Square was flower bombed by vendors who didn't know what to do with the flowers from all the canceled events, the weddings and parties and celebrations and bar bat mitzvahs and all the events that people order flowers for, and these flowers are just going to go to waste. And instead, what these vendors did, they took them out, and here's an image of it. They took them out and they decorated this open public space of Rittenhouse Square. And people gathered over many days to look at these flowers, to witness them, and to be together in the face of this new loss that we were just becoming familiar with. When we allow ourselves to pivot in this way and say, yes, life is not what we would have wished right now, and we don't keep insisting that we need to go back to normal, we can adapt, we can share wonder and beauty and love with each other in repurposed and unexpected ways. May we recognize that death will, at one point or another, and my hope is that it's a long time in the future for all of us, that death will interrupt our lives. And by accepting its invitation now in our midst, may we all be returned to life much more fully, much more kindly, and much more lovingly. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Would you pray with me, join your heart with mine right now in prayer? Deep and abiding spirits of love. A very simple prayer. Prayer is confession today. This is hard. It is difficult to watch the death and the sadness and the grief. So simply, this is what I ask. It's here. May we give it space. In giving it space, may we contribute in time to come to there being less loss and less death and less grief. It is said that hurt people hurt people, but the opposite is also true, dear spirit of love, that healing people help to heal people. May we be accounted among 
the healing ones today. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.